North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached, and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Dr. Kuntz, which of these two is a greater threat to the average American, uh, the FBI or the IRS? <laughs> oh, that's such a good question. I would I would say the IRS for sure. That's what I'm yeah, thinking too, especially as they yeah. militarize and plan to audit all the poor people into the ground. I don't know what they're going to find. All these stolen night- pennies. That's right. Your your unreported, you know, re, you know, remuneration for doing a funeral sometime, and you just forgot the check was there. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That two hundred bucks a year really is going to make a difference in the uh, the <laughs> billion right. dollars that were thrown overseas. I mean, right. That's right. How much yeah. of that do they think there is? Well, and it's funny the way that these pretexts work. So let's let's lead into answering this question this way: is that the the pretext for the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago is about recovery. Sometimes they'll sometimes they'll say that it involves nuclear secrets, but it's it's really a little bit more pedestrian than that. It it could involve, I suppose, if you wanted it to, nuclear secrets, I guess, if you want to pretend like any of this is sincere. But what it involves is that after Watergate, in 1978, they passed something called the Presidential Records Act that means that presidents after their term of office is over need to turn over their presidential papers to the National Archives and Records Administration, which probably most listeners don't know exists. And then eventually that is the kind of thing that goes into like a presidential library. So this is pretty mundane stuff. 
prior to the Nixon administration, presidents would just take them home or Lincoln's relatives burnt his official papers. They're your papers. <laughs> Nothing uh, to it see was, here. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I could do... We'd probably lose a lot of listeners if I did a Lincoln episode. I don't think I'm the admirer that, that many are, but... Yeah, I'm not uh, either. Uh, <laughs> something, something tells me they took the airbrush to him quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, big time. But so, you know, the pretext for the raid on Mar-a-Lago, and it's it's not entirely clear if they just raided the private residence or also the business that is there, is a search for presidential papers. So... That's also why they went through, you know, Mrs. Trump's wardrobe in order to find these papers. So these are the kinds of pretexts they use even on the powerful. So what then will they do to us, mm-hmm. uh, the little guy? So that's why I think the IRS is a bigger is a bigger threat because the FBI may or may not listen to this podcast every week or something, but it doesn't present the same the same sort of difficulty that somebody who holds high elected office can present to the country. And I have my own theories about why why Trump is such a still a target of political rhetoric, campaign rhetoric, even though he's not officially running for anything, certainly not, say, Senate in Arizona. But why he matters as much as he does, especially to people who despise him. But for we who go unnoticed, we get the 80 some thousand new IRS agents. And if the listener wants to sign up to be an IRS agent, you know, that's, uh, I mean, maybe that's better you than anyone else, but I suppose you probably would lose your soul in time doing something like that. So maybe don't do it, but it's interesting to consider why are they doing this? And I think that they're doing it in order to present a greater danger and greater practical surveillance to the little guy. Because, you know, I don't think they need the money exactly. That's not even how they make money or fund what it is that our regime does. But they need us to be afraid, especially of informality and of ties that cannot be tracked. So if I give you, you know, $1,000 because I'm your friend for some purpose that you need, and I hand it to you in cash, I guess they can start asking where that money went or how did you get the thousand dollars if I wrote out a check and you know it can't it can't just be a gift or there's someone you're going to need to explain your whole life to potentially so these things are very invasive and it's just it's just a further invasion of life there is no private life that they want left the reasons for that could be manifold but it is the same kind of scrutiny that people talk about when they say well why why aren't you running again for elective office? And often politicians or, or soon to be former politicians will say something like, my, my family can't take it anymore. My wife wants to spend more time with the grandkids. And I don't think that stuff is all euphemistic. Hmm. There, are, there are realities to being in a public position and some of them are actually horrible and that needs to be recognized in any group, let alone running for public elective office in the United States. So- what they're trying to do is to make more people's lives more, at least potentially public and certainly more, more obviously surveilled. So we were talking a little bit before we hit record and I, I kind of brought up a question that I'll, I'll swing back around then because uh, what makes this, I guess, work against me, that is of all the news in the last year, the level of terror I have had over 87,000 IRAs, IRS agents armed with munitions uh, has surpassed the fear, the existential fear of just about every other piece of news out there. I mean, I, I don't think I was afraid as afraid of COVID hmm. as I am of, of this news. It's like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be bad. Um, yeah. And uh, this couples with, uh, you know, inflationary times and, and uh, acts taken by Congress that will not fix this. But in fact, again, bring, bring the agents in to make sure they squeeze in whatever way. While personally, um, I'm sitting here in a position, you know, where where I am making the most money I've ever made in my life. I'm by no means rolling in it at all, and this is kind of the point. Like I'm at a place where I I didn't really think that this was even possible, uh, and yet it's not enough for a family of seven um, with two cars. You know, it's 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 not enough. I can't seem to catch up to the demands of the present economy. 
mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't leave me now um, losing funds uh, on a, at least on this year's basis. And, and, you know, for the listeners ears, um, you know, putting braces on three kids in one year, it's, it's going to hit you. It's going to yeah. hit you. Um, yeah. So, you know, and that's why you, that's why you save and all this kind of thing, but it just kind of, it's kind of blows me away how weak the dollar is. And they, they talk about that inflationary number is always oh, 8% this month. Blah, 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 blah. But like, yeah. like, no, really, uh, it, this is this is getting rough, and then they're going to come and try to make you spend all your time proving that you aren't stealing, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, um, and and to do this too, they swear they swear not over four hundred thousand or not under four hundred thousand, but but no, no, they it's in the it's in the text, like it's in the documents, right? So um, they're going to squeeze the middle. Um, so to, I, I believe you that you tell me this is a is a is a fear tactic. I believe you that. Uh, you say that this is more of, say, the global surveillance state coming our way. Um, what I don't know what to do, aside from, you know, say hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, I'm counted to suffer, um, is is what to do about it. Something you can see consistently occurring, not not only since perhaps, you know, the listener has become aware of these things, which is for a lot of people the past two years, even before that. Way back in the early 2000s, we still had extensive discussion over inheritance taxes in different forms, spun, I think, successfully by Republicans as the death tax, something that you can see consistently occurring with taxation, tax policy, tax enforcement, but as well in lots of realms of life is the incapacity to pass things on for any number of reasons. So instead of just talking about inflation or talking about how currency is controlled or currency is devalued, that's that's one side of this discussion we could discuss pretty much every week for the next six months, and we'd find a different side of it, and the listenership would drop rapidly as we got <laughs> progressively more arcane. So we're not going to do that. I think I think a larger, more ongoing reality is not saying like, well, what what can I in this place and then my brother who lives in this other place and then my parents who live in this other place, wh- how how can we all afford to buy, you know, a cheeseburger and a Coke? And why is it so much more expensive than it was when my dad was, you know, 18 years old? Because it, it is. Or why is gas so much more expensive? So am I going to go see them? And how do we change that? We We could talk about that. Some of that is actually relatively easy to access. And it's really easy to see because you can see gas prices flying all over the place. And it's not what it was when I started driving. Hey, hey so, they're, they're down like like thirty five cents thanks <laughs> to uh, Uncle Joe. He really did some work I know. for us. Maybe that I don't know if that was Pelosi's trip to Taiwan that did that for <laughs> us. Who knows? I don't know where my gratitude should be directed. That's my only problem. To your betters, sir. <laughs> but I think that the larger ongoing reality is that the the forms of both wealth, strictly speaking, but also of your sense that life is coherent generally have to do with things that are difficult to pass on or very unusual, such as inherited wealth, such as a sense of familial cohesiveness. So let's say everybody's even in all in the same place and you own land. Okay. A goal I know many listeners have because that's what you tell me when, when I meet you, right? I mean, we have a conversation, we talk about, people talk about land or they talk about their families and that's wonderful. If everybody's in the same place, they're still vehemently ideologically divided by virtue of their educational background or the schooling they've received or are receiving, the media they're consuming, the TV that has hollowed out their brains, like when you drill down in the middle of an apple. And so there's just nothing in the middle and gets filled with some kind of sugary goop like people eat at the county fair yeah but it's fun dr king (laughs) i guess it is fun to turn into a you know a caramel apple for a little while how i relax (laughs) i know i know and the problem is you can spend your whole life relaxing and then the question is you you know what what are you actually passing on so there are there are forms of intergenerational being and wealth that are worthwhile and make life more coherent and not just bearable, but even enjoyable. And 
life, I don't think, is actually meant to be born on your own, solely. Not even economically is it meant to be born in that way. And I know that Christians know that because I know their generosity when people are in are in trouble, for example. But I think also in days of prosperity, it's not like I'm trying to make more money in order to, you know, I don't know, drink two more margaritas every day or something, which would be two more than I than I ever drink. It would be to to give it to, to others, to share it with others in my family, in my extended family in the church. That's what it's for. And our system is set up such that the money is for you. You sacrifice enormous amounts of your life to get more of it. I mean, life and, and also of living. You sacrifice living for working. And what you get at the end of that is not just inflationary pressures. You also get a certain hollowness, whether you have the money or not, because it feels like you're just throwing it down the drain at the end of the day, and you can't take it with you. So one way to see this is how you are allowed to accumulate stuff. So you will find that if Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, or they can't pass on intergenerational wealth or something, they do have stuff. Almost everybody has tons of stuff. So you are allowed to consume. You're not really allowed to give, especially to your own. You will be taxed. It will be prohibitively expensive. Inflation will press on you. You're not allowed to hold on to it and to nurture it. I mean, it takes it takes an unusual amount of research, care, and management of risk to pass something substantial on. Yeah, you got to have enough to be able to pay someone to do it for you. Yeah, right. right. So I think I think that 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 is that is what is at stake in surveillance of the little guy is the small business owner who's actually doing well for himself or the family that has benefited from the gifts of others. Where did this money come from? You know, suspiciously, or, you know, maybe, you know, the mom opted out of working and so they're living on this. So now they're going to be surveilled because they're not behaving as good consumers. So, I mean, you could kind of see these things coming. It was there in the early 2000s. And I think one of the more sinister things that happened around that same time that makes people perhaps dismissive of the things that we've just been saying is that, I mean, this, this, this is how like, you know, ritual pat downs and x-rays and stuff were sold to you at the airport too. You're going to be safer and you should have nothing to hide. And it's not so much that I, that I have something to hide it's that I I think I have a right not to be looked at. Mm -hmm. And that is the very thing that in an increasingly, obviously urbanized uh, time, as well as a more surveilled time, you, where would you even get a sense that you have a right not well, to be looked it's at? It's guilty until proven innocent. And it's, right. a, it's a yeah. permanent state of that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So when you're thinking about these things financially, and I think we've... I, I've certainly mentioned, I, I think that churches should begin to think collectively about incentivizing marriage and home ownership for their members, full stop, not just for, you know, they're, they're, they're used to trying to get housing for the clergy. That's wonderful. What about everybody else? Because if these things are not happening on their own, then it it's in the church's interest, certainly, to help make them happen. Because what, what we're looking at is we're either going to think really intentionally and engage in management of risk and engage in sacrifice for future generations right now, or we just won't exist and the future generations won't exist either. So I think, I think those, are, those are the stakes, right? It's not just that none of us is going to become rich anytime soon. It's that we have a really difficult period of time in which it's incumbent on us to sacrifice in a way that let's be honest is foreign to pretty much all of us yeah we weren't raised we, i mean we weren't raised with and i don't just mean you know the sinful flesh i mean we were not the sinful flesh yes is always there in any human being the difference is some some people were raised with certain expectations 
and some were not. And almost none of us was raised with the expectation that sacrifice for future generations, not only for braces, but also for being set up in life or for having something that they could inherit, that they could then themselves develop. This could be land. It could be a business. It could be lots of things. That just wasn't the model. You, no. you know, you go to you go to college so you can get a job, so you can have a nice income, and you have a nice income so you can buy stuff. I mean, that's the whole. The goal here is not sacrifice, but stuff. So that's why we're good at it. That's why even poor people in America. Well, the number of times I've heard fathers, Christian fathers, you know, talk about how they can't wait till the you know their kids out of the house, right, on their own, and how important it is for them to go, you know, be on their own. And so it's just it's that's in the water, and and this is on top of, um, you know, you talk about a lack of uh, corporate mentality for sacrificing to future generations. Uh, you're a little younger into this fight, but I know you see it that within at least our church body, there's just no commitment to even having future generations. There there, there, there isn't. <laughs> yeah, you know? I mean, and, and to be fair, the answer is well, yeah. mission. We're going to convert everybody with our yeah. you know uh, blended services. I I think that. That is, that is, it's a manifestation inside of the church of an attitude that is unreal in the economic sense. So this, this gets spun as in political discourse as usually in racial terms that it is white privilege and what that masks in the life of any white person, but what if the concept were applied to other races or, or applied along some kind of, you know, gender divide or something or, or economic divide. What that masks is most good things that you have in your life are from some prior generation <laughs> and from their sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And that is not the unique preserve of white people or males or, or anything like that. And it's true in the church too. If, you know, if they didn't fight this battle at this time, I wouldn't be here or this wouldn't be possible or whatever. And both the more that I know but also, especially the more that I know about my family and my family's history, the more that I realize that I, I I do not have a sense of myself as existing in isolation, either obviously from my children or potential grandchildren or great-grandchildren someday, right? But I also don't feel like I live in, in isolation from my great-grandparents. And that changes your perspective on everything because it really makes you a blip. Now... Uh, that doesn't mean that you're unimportant. It just means that you're brief. There's a book that I am reading right now called Clear Pond. It's a it's sort of a genealogy book, but it's by a poet who learned that a man existed back in the 19th century. And, and he wanted to know, well, how much can I reconstruct of this man's life? And it's interesting. It's kind of like a detective story almost. Clear Pond. It's an old book. Obviously, it's probably 30 years old. But what's fascinating about it is how important this one man, Israel Johnson, was in his place and time. And then he goes out of existence. And and at first, the writer despairs that he's going to find anything about this man. But he drives seven miles into the woods in the Adirondacks in upstate New York. And there are these guys working on framing up a shed. And he hasn't found any clues for weeks. And he says, I'm looking for this guy, Israel Johnson. And the guy puts his hammer down. He's like, I'm sorry, I was interrupting him. But the guy puts his hammer down and says, Oh, well, this is Johnson's clearing. And that sends him on this progression of finding out something about this man. I mean, you have to realize that you may be nothing and there may be a faint memory of you. That's okay, right? That's 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 life. And that's actually a good thing. So when I think about it that way, I want my government, for example, to recognize that because I think that's that's not just a preference I have, that is reality is that I'm a blip. There were many before me and there are many after me, right? God willing. So if I'm a blip, then please allow me to receive something from the blips before me and to pass it on to the blips after me. And don't make my life unduly difficult while I am being, you know, the blip that I am for as long as I am. And our government has really switched from a historic emphasis on making life for the common man as relatively manageable as possible. So Real estate is historically low in the United States. Land is historically available in the United States. Prices are often quite low. They were for much of the 20th century. So that makes life a little more possible for the common man, for all those little guys. And now it is precisely the opposite. 
So it it would seem to me that we are undergoing not something that's utterly unprecedented, but a pretty historic change toward a very singular focus on those who are under the illusion that they are not blips. That is generally the very, very wealthy. Yeah. And, and as we've talked about before with ideas of the looting phase here in the casino, um, yeah. there's really not any going back. And that's where then the nostalgia and the uh, the relaxing um, doesn't help us. Uh, it's it's a time for, for men to be men or, or know that there will be no more men like us. And maybe, you know, for who you are, it's not worth passing on your, your blip doesn't amount much more to being able to recite, you know, every character in, uh, in the DC universe or something like that. Um, and, uh, yeah. Uh, but, but for those of us who are Christians and it ought to mean something that, uh, that we don't disappear. It, it really should. Right. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that is done to make your, your, I don't know, blip hood a little more bearable while you're being watched is to give you some sense of comfort, generally of material comfort that allows you to be insignificant without worrying about it. And I I don't think that insignificance is bad on some sort of macro scale. Like, are you the absolute best farmer there's ever been or the absolute most profound thinker that there's ever been. That doesn't really matter. But the thing that, for example, gives you a deep sense of significance for the the, the average man is having a family. So if that's the very thing that it's becoming relatively uncommon to have that are human beings for whom your existence is absolutely indispensable, if that's becoming uncommon or if that's stigmatized or if I consistently get asked, are these all yours? And I, and I've suggested to my wife, but I think she's too nice to do this. And if the listeners know her, they know how very nice she is, is just to say no. And then see if they, you know, think this is some sort of human trafficking operation, (laughs) (laughs) but no, yeah, no, they're for sale. Would you like one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you want one? I mean, they just happen to all look exactly alike, basically. Um, we run a farm. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like we specialize in blonde hair, blue eyes. Right. Um, they're like golden retrievers, basically. That's right. But human. We don't um, have an island do, yet. We're just working that way. Yeah, do you want one? Yeah. So those those kinds of things, significance is actually in the way that God has ordered his creation significance, a sense of fullness of life, of of being alive, is actually available to each human being. And in the looting phase of the casino, I mean, the casino was already deceptive because it was a sense of being alive conditioned on adrenaline, or we might say specific to the smartphone era of dopamine, mm-hmm. rather than a sense of being alive coming from the the life that you are living day to day, especially with the people with whom you have that life. So you were already being sold a bill of goods when you were told that being alive meant like when you throw the dice and the roulette wheel begins to spin around and that just that rush, that's life, right? So that's, that's risky life or that's consumer life or that's however you want to think about the structure of the casino. But That's the sense that you were given. In the looting phase, they have so loaded that wheel that you're not going to win, but you will stay there. So you will be, for instance, comped, right? So in a casino, this is, we'll give you this so that you stay in the casino, right? So the way that this works is you will receive a sense of prestigious consumption when you buy this, that, or the other thing, or you have this many followers or whatever, that you are as it were, at home at, you know, the gambling table rather than a sense of significance that would be derived from living in a house across the street from the casino where you have a life that is very differently constituted but much more meaningful on a daily basis. And it's interesting to me that people say, oh, I can't wait until the kids are out of the house, but then they they miss being needed the way that the kids needed them. So then they can't wait to, but then they're, they're shocked to learn that their kids don't want to give them grandchildren. They don't 
they don't want to have kids because the kids have been trained for prestigious consumption because what they want, they just want like a, another two-year-old who really needs them. That That's what they actually want because they want to have the sense that their job doesn't matter and the car they drive isn't that nice and their house isn't that big and whatever, but there are human beings who need them. Yeah, the uh, the hunger for grandkids among those who didn't really want their kids is um, another one of those parts of pastoral life that just kind of, I don't know, you sit there and you, you can't say anything, but there's like this, you know, buzzing disconnect in the head, right? That just does not compute. Um, can't you see it? Why don't you understand? <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. It's not going to happen. Um, not, not if, especially if you can't actually say to them, I was wrong. I should have, I should have cared more. Right. Like that might, that might change the, the kid's uh, attitude a little bit, but, or, you know, the, yeah, the, the yeah, adult's I, attitude. Yeah, no, that's right. Because the, the capacity to say that you were wrong about something is, I, th- I mean, I think we understand this in most relationships of any kind, friendships, marriages, the capacity to say that you were wrong is really crucial because most of the time, the thing that the other person who, apart from your income level or the car you drive or whatever, makes your life significant. The, the thing that that person wants more than anything is a sense that you are not indifferent to them. And indifference is, of course, the natural stance of the prestigious consumer because it, you don't even want things because of what they are. You want them because of what they seem to be. I mean, it's it's there are mirrors all over the casino and they it, it it's a house of illusions. So if you are able to say years later, I was wrong about this, even reflectively, that gives the person listening to you a sense that, you know, here's a human being. This is a, this is a soul. There are depths here. Again, the way that God made you. I mean, I think, I think that one of the things that is perhaps saddest, right? So, so pastorally is not just that people are saying things and they're oblivious to how their life has actually caused those things to come to pass, right? Like they can't, and when you can't see the connection. So if, if I just scream at you and then I can't see the connection between I screamed at you, now you're angry at me, right? Right, right, right? right? Like obviously, right? So if I can't see connections, then I really cannot change. I yeah. can't, I can't repent. There's no wisdom if there's no connection, right? I mean, the whole, the whole point of wisdom is to draw connections other people can't draw. So if I can't do that, that's that's one it, it you're you're like infantile basically because I, I can't you know it's like a baby he can't see the connection between he smacks your face and you don't like it he i mean he likes smacking your face so why don't you like when he smacks your face and that is the zombie apocalypse that we're in though i mean they're they're not they're not flesh eating bacteria driven blah 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 they're they're uh, screen world trained uh disconnected floaters yeah. yeah, right. And that sense that sense of floating through life. So then what happens is that the significance that is actually sitting right in front of me, I don't even get to enjoy it because I can't see it because it has no price tag on it. Now, I, I, there there is an inflation of price. And then I think sometimes things become priceless when they're valuable enough. So there are times in your life before which you could give up on certain forms of connection, especially with other people. But there are times after which those things become priceless. And the greatest possible regret is the person who realizes that too late. So when the listener is thinking about, okay, well, what do I want to sacrifice for? I think one thing to think about is what is it that is actually priceless because for that you can you can dump anything into it and this isn't this isn't necessarily you know braces for your kids maybe it is this isn't necessarily a car maybe it is this isn't necessarily help with a down payment but maybe it is those things are those things are all fungible and changeable they don't that's that's part of why they don't matter that much because that that sense of significance in where i live and and who i'm with is not derived from the money that I've spent to make it possible. It's derived from those human beings. So this is something that I know that some of the listeners are familiar with just because I've meant, I've probably mentioned on the show before, but this has always been very affecting to me that in Alexander Schmemann's journals, he opens, he was a Eastern Orthodox theologian. He taught at 
St. Vladimir Seminary in New York for essentially his entire career. Grew up in Paris. His family were Baltic Germans from Russia originally. They fled the Soviets. And Schmemann is about at the height of his public career when the journal opens. I believe he's 53 years old. He says, I have been a priest for 25 years. And he's on a train to Wilmington, Delaware, of all places, in order to speak at a parish he speaks at every year. And he lists off some of his titles. He's been promoted. This is all a big deal. Everyone listens to him. He's the dean of his seminary, which I think at the time is sort of like being in charge of it. And he says, what is this? This really is nothing. He both can't believe that it's all happened and it's sort of nothing. And on a different day when he gets home on the train, it's snowing and he's walking past the other homes. And this is kind of in Yonkers, New York. And he's walking past the other homes and he's been on the train and he's been doing important things with important people. And there are lights on in these little single family homes. And he says, that's where life is. Life isn't located other places. It's not in the stuff that you've done and the places that you go and the people who think you're important. And that is something that I have never forgotten. I mean, I partly because I read those journals every year for that reason, because of those kinds of insights, but also because the man achieved as much as he could have possibly achieved in his, let's say, vocation in life, in his professional career. And what actually matters is when he gets to spend Saturday at home drinking coffee with his wife. That's that's life. That's what life is for on this earth, right? That is a sense of fullness that most people are missing. And he has it when he goes to church and he has it with his family. And I, I don't mean any of this to be sort of some sort of privatization of everything. And if we just retreat into our houses, then they'll leave us alone. I mean, that's <laughs> that's an that's one of the illusions in in this house of illusions is that you'll just be left alone. But I mean that you can orient everything else that you're doing around where life is actually lived, a life that is significant and worthwhile. And then it life becomes a all of it becomes a great deal clearer. And I think in some in some measure less stressful. I mean, sometimes if I have to spend money on something or if something is happening, I think, well, you know, today my child was not diagnosed with cancer. So, because if he had been, then the fact that I have to do this or that, or this is not going well, then you know what? It would have mattered a lot less. So I'm just going to kind of trick myself for a second into realizing how little it matters by putting it in comparison to something that, that in fact did not happen. It seems to me that for my part, um, a lot of the, I don't know if it's despair, it's probably too heavy a word. The, the fear, the existential terror of insignificance or of failure, maybe even more than that, Mm -hmm. um, uh, that most of it isn't the thing that I'm actually having to do. Yep. It's the, it's the imagined potential future it could bring. Yep. So similarly, I've, I've been striving to, um, you know, so I'm, I, I have to do this. It's going to cost so much money that eats into my savings. Oh no, we're going to starve in three years, <laughs> right. but I'm not going to starve today. Today, I'm going to do a podcast with Dr. Kuhn. So I'm going to go to jujitsu class. I'm going to eat some beef with my family. And, uh, that's today. So, Hey, Jonathan, how about you just enjoy it? Cause it's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. What I find stunning again is how hard it is to do that. And uh, I continue to experiment pulling back from Screen World uh, even more because of that. Um, I'm really just convinced that uh, the the projection of platonic realities uh, that might be real somewhere else in the world, but they're not real where I am. Um, that the the living in that uh, imagined space uh, is a huge part of the inability to uh, enjoy the actual present. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I know I, you, you wrote a piece, uh, in Christian culture, um, out of the Wyoming, uh, classical school startup, uh, and you talked about some of these things too there. And, and I was really glad to hear you, um, continue to push on that because I'm starting to get, uh, louder about it. I, I really don't want, you know, the people in my pew to think that Christianity requires you to stop watching TV. Like, like that, that's it. 
you figured it out. Here's the law, right? And and you follow <laughs> the law, and it'll all be good, right? Um, but I did just have you know a conversation with a couple recently where she's depressed and filled with anxiety, and they fight too much, and I'm like, well, put the phone down, like right. stop, like three hours a night, stop, <laughs> you know, put the phone down. I, I don't know if I could live like that. I know you can't. You're addicted to it. Yeah. But you know, I, what we, we do, um, you'd sit by each other until you got bored enough to talk. You know, that's what you would do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And, so, you know, that um, that imperative, I think, is is there one way or the other. Um, and it's not about cold turkey and, and hard quitting, although the problem is for many people, it probably is now. Like, yeah. like it didn't have to be that. And it doesn't have to be that for every generation ever. These are tools. We can learn to use the tools. But right now, while we're addicted unto death to the tools, um, there's not many ways to kind of like have your foot in and out or well to serve God and mammon. Put it that way. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that happens when you do something cold turkey is that it shocks you. And you might need somebody around to help you with the shock. So if you're trying to do something like that, it would be best to let at least one other person know so he can support you yeah. in that. I mean, just pretend that you are addicted to heroin because in a spiritual sense, you kind of are. Kind of are, right. <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> and, and if you start thinking about that way, then then you know, guess what? You get you get to live the life of a grateful recovering addict hereafter. And that's really nice. You don't you don't have to go scrounging around for gratitude because you will have a much greater sense of gratitude hereafter, especially if you do something cold turkey. And you will also be able, I think, to I guess just think think about your life as in its entirety a gift. Now, Christianity is supposed to do this. And Lutherans talk a lot about baptism and how they are present tense baptized. But if you begin to think that way, then one of the things that going through death should clarify you for you is what is actually worthwhile in the way that terminal cancer diagnoses clarify things for people. The good news is that for the baptized, you get to, you already went through not only your terminal diagnosis, but also your death. So now you get to live like somebody who not only has a terminal diagnosis. So, okay, I'm going to forgive my mother. Okay. I'm not going to do this. Okay. I'm going to spend my time doing that because that's actually worthwhile. And you know what? I mean, th this is also why, and you're totally, I, I love the way that you said that to say that there's a law and then we're going to follow it. Like stop watching TV. Yeah. That's my advice totally for everybody but you haven't arrived yet because wisdom grows gradually in these ways. And, you know, I, I, I myself will wake up and think, man, I wish I hadn't done that 10 years ago or said that seven years ago because it's led to this and it's led to that and whatever. And so you're always changing and growing into being fully alive. So if you're being watched and they're trying to track the way that your money flows or whatever, realize that it matters and it doesn't. It doesn't matter because you're not going to stop the internal revenue service and the growth of the federal government on your own. It does matter because it makes more of your life in something where the growth that needs to happen doesn't because you're worried or you're stressed or you are obsessed probably via your phone about things that you can't change. Mm -hmm. And that leaves undone and unchanged the parts of your life over which you have sole control, such as how you handle what you did say 10 years ago and the people that that affected and how that has changed your life. And it makes you passive in those things over which you do have control. So sometimes we talk about really big picture things. And the reason that I do that is to help people understand where the life as we know it has come from and, and therefore where it could go or why it is the way it is. But sometimes we have to talk about things like what we're talking about today simply because I, it is the absolute saddest thing in the world when people feel passive under evil. And the evil is not only an external matter as if otherwise life is unaffected. And I'm just telling you, oh, the federal government has gotten too big, you know. 
as if it's like 1994 and that's our biggest problem or something. The federal government has gotten too big and it affects us on a spiritual level because you're supposed to, because you need to be on your phone finding out what's going on and then getting upset about it and rinse and repeat on and on and on and whatever else is happening. And therefore the evils that are present in your life about which you could do something, you don't even know that they're there. So it's interesting that, you know, people are expressing their marriage problems and they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm depressed rather than saying, and this is what Christianity would teach you to say, I am wrong in this specific way, that specific way. Okay. Because your depression might be totally real, but it also might totally be connected to the fact that you are wrong about things that you are oblivious to because you're floating through life. Yeah. 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 I'm so at the point where anybody who, I mean, and as one who has, uh, I would say falls under the category of battle, battling clinical depression to the point where I took all those medicines. They now are telling us never did anything. Don't do anything. Uh, kill you (laughs) maybe, but don't do anything else. Um, you know, I was, I was on one or three of those, uh, various times. So I don't want anyone who's listening to, to feel that I don't understand because I'm pretty confident I do. Um, I'm at the point where if, if you tell me, um, I'm anxious, I'm depressed. And, and I say, are you using a smartphone? Are you on social media? Are you watching movies every night and TV every night? And you say, yes. My answer is that's why. And until you're willing to like stop for a significant amount of time, and heal because you got to heal. It's not going to be like I quit and tomorrow I feel better. It's right. you, yeah. you got to heal. It's going to take years to get back the spirit you have spent. You've spent your spirit being worried about not your life. And that includes like the best movie you ever saw, right? The Godfather. It was so good. Oh, it was amazing. You see how I did that thing with the oranges in the street and blah, 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 blah. Okay. You lived that. You spent your spirit on that. And now you don't know how to talk to your neighbor. So you have to cut off the poison and then you have to let your spirit heal. And I believe firmly that 95% of people who have clinical depression and anxiety, if they would just do this for two, three years, it's going to be, it's going to be gone. You're, you're, yeah. you're going to be normal. You're going to feel fine. You're still going to have a lot of crap going on in your life, but it's right. not going to feel like it does. I mean, the people yeah. who lived a hundred years ago had a lot more like survival crap going on than we do. They didn't feel like we do. Right. Yeah. Well, because they didn't have to live vicarious lives constantly. Yes. And when you only have the one life, it clarifies what it is that is going on really, truly, because you have time to think and observe, but it also clarifies the value of it. And the sad thing that obviously we've seen in a lot of the rhetoric surrounding the overturning of Roe v. Wade is a devaluation of existence per se, which is how it's not so much that, oh yeah, people are opposed to, you know, outlawing abortion. The flippant way in which they talk about the existence of life shows you their own sadness and misery about being alive. It's not just that they disagree theoretically that a child in the womb is a human being who is innocent of any crime and therefore should not be killed. It's also that they can talk about shouting their abortion because they don't believe that life is really worth anything. And they mean that also about their own lives implicitly, sometimes explicitly. Yeah. So when you realize that, then you can see things as manifestations of, of illness, especially of spiritual illnesses rather than simply a different set of talking points. Or we just, We need to overwhelm those talking points with our talking points for certain limited political goals, limited historical goals. Sure. Go for it. Overwhelm the talking points. State the truth. That's wonderful. Realize that spiritually, that's not what's wrong with them. It's not just that the things that they're aware of or the things that they can articulate are what's wrong with them. It's that their lives are crying out to be noticed and they are not noticed. And the people that have those lives are not even aware of what's wrong with them because they're spending most of their time living utterly vicariously, usually through media consumption, Mm -hmm. which is why you will generally find a very significant overlap also within the church between accommodation of current social and political trends and media consumption. It's going to be almost impossible to find some guy 
that works with his hands every day that is going to be totally on board with, you know, <laughs> Pride Month. And the reason for that is not that he's consuming nothing. A lot of those guys listen to more podcasts than maybe anybody. It's because <laughs> it's because he is not actually able to live a vicarious life. Partly because I think audio is a little bit like reading in that it requires your own mind to be active. And anything that makes your mind active or makes your soul active or activates your desire to be with other people is going to give you a life in the present that you are living that will have its troubles, but will also at least actually be life rather than living through others, living through superheroes, living through whatever it is that is not truly even alive. And that that would be my contribution to the zombie apocalypse discussion is that before the people were zombies, the things that they were caring about were were zombies. They were lives that are not real. Superheroes, movie figures, celebrities. And when you attach your things, when you attach your soul to things that are unreal, you yourself become unreal. <laughs> There's a Bible verse about that. The, um, <laughs> so we're kind of circling around this idea of finding significance in the insignificant things. Um, those things which the world would call insignificant are filled with meaning when they are yours, when they are shared with your own. Uh, and the apparent insignificance of not leaving this permanent mark on the world uh, instead becomes the significance of living today as a gift to you, through you, with others, for others, from them as well as the experience which, which God designed. Um, now, I don't know if this entirely connects, but I think it does. So um, one of the interesting mental riddles that I've been pulling on in the time I'm not scrolling Twitter, uh, which was my more recent version of, uh, of Screenland, um, is... The awareness that I've spent a lot of my my adult life, my my pastor life, you know, I do my job, but I'm always trying to to get ahead, whatever that means. And a lot of the attempting to get ahead was so that I could feel I had the space in order to do a certain thing for me that would be right. Write something publish your mm -hmm. work and some of my stuff. You publish some. I know, but those aren't the ones I'm talking about. There, there's other writing I've wanted to do since I was 18 years old or younger. And so I've I've been on this sort of um, what uh, productivity quest, uh, success quest, striving to get to that place where I would be able to then sit back and do this thing that I want to do. And what what's been kind of weird, awkward, hard even, is seeing that all of these attempts to get somewhere so I can do this thing prevented me from doing this thing. That I was yeah. giving my time to yeah. trying to achieve something so I could achieve something when I could just achieve the first thing. And it wouldn't be what I imagined it to be Based on what? I don't know. I don't. I didn't watch a lot of movies about being a writer or something like that. But I would have told you, well, I'm studying story or something like that. I would. I would. I would have said something like that about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I need to know what's going on so I can connect the characters. This kind of thing, right? Um, I, I would. I would have spun it as as moving toward the goal. But the thing was, I was always moving away from the goal in order to move toward the goal. Yep. And the the freedom <laughs> of 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 space. I don't have as much as I would like, but the freedom of space in my own thinking here keeps saying, no, no, hey, Jonathan, why, why don't you just write what you want to write and stop trying to create some future where you get to? Like, like do it right now. And then my, yep. my, my, my weakling little heart goes, well, I don't feel like it right now. And then that's my own personal battle to like discipline myself past that. But, but the, that confrontation is, is very um, prescient right now. And to, to be fair, I, I'm I'm losing the battle of I don't want to, meaning that I'm actually beating that. Um, you know, the, the part of me that doesn't want to is much weaker than it was because it has no excuses now. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know if you can make hay out of that, but it's been it's been a fascinating internal struggle 
um, against what I thought would work, which I'm finding out is the opposite. And then as I, as I crush that, uh, by, uh, removing myself from, uh, vicarious living, um, suddenly there's this, this place. And, and let me just put it in a completely yeah. different, different yeah, sure. framework. So like, you know, uh, what am I going to do uh, if, if I'm not doing all this stuff? Well, I don't know. You could build a chair. Yeah. But then what would I have? Well, a chair, what if it's really ugly? Then you'd have an ugly chair, but you built it. That's actually significant. It's more significant than worrying about how you might need to study a bunch to make the perfect chair so it would last forever. You'll right. never get to the chair. Yeah, that's right. And and I I think that this is a mistake that people will con- they in my experience they will continue making it time after time after time, but not only when they are relatively young, but even when they are relatively old is that they they try to live as if life is either seen from or as if its significance is derived from the future. And the fact is that you will never, not a single second in your life, be in the future that you're looking for. You will arrive somewhere and then discontent or dissatisfaction will come back in because you are governed by an unknown future. They have to realize that life is really governed by memory. You really only ever can look around or you can look back. You cannot look straight ahead and know what it is that you're looking at. You can look back and you can think about things that are significant. So I'll just give you a personal example. Pastor Fisk is giving a personal example. So I'll give a personal example from the last year. One of the things I can remember from the last year that was very significant was not scheduled with any of the listeners. I was not paid for it. It did not matter. Other people didn't even know it was happening that day, except the rest of the family. We were at my parents' house for Thanksgiving, and my dad and I took the older boys squirrel hunting, which is like preparation for deer hunting. We weren't out very long. The boys weren't very successful, but I would say that's probably one of the best things that happened last year. So that's not something I prepared for. Uh, It was my dad's idea. Why don't we do this when you're here? And that's the kind of thing that actually makes life worthwhile and significant and full. The rest of it might have been in service of that. It might not have been. I don't know. A lot of the rest of that year was scheduled. A lot of the rest of that year was stuff I had to do or say for or in front of other people. And that was all fine. And I'm glad that some of it is of benefit to some people, but it's not really life, fully speaking. So when I think about life in that way, then I think, okay, well, how do things like taking the boys squirrel hunting happen? I realize it doesn't cost much money. It usually involves an investment. And this is something the IRS currently is not tracking in my life. It usually involves an investment of time, time and presence. When I can invest those things, then I think I'm actually rich, no matter how much money the the IRS is keeping track of. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason you want the money is to create the time so you can yeah. do the things. Yep. Why not just take the time you have? Yep. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we've been circling around in significance and Herbert Hoover is on the docket and I can't help but, <laughs> but think it's, we haven't gotten to him in an hour and there's a reason for that. Yeah. Well, yeah. He, well, he wasn't <laughs> pressing on us like Abraham Lincoln did earlier, actually. But the irony here, and we can just set it up for for next week largely, the irony is that Herbert Hoover was legitimately, to his contemporaries, extremely impressive. So the way that he starts out his life is that he is orphaned by the age of eight, if I remember correctly. Wow. And so he is sent away from the farm where he grows up in Iowa. He's sent to live with uh, an aunt and uncle in Oregon, a different kind of, he grows up in a Quaker colony. He and, and Nixon are our Quaker presidents. And Hoover is in the first class of Stanford University. And he becomes a mining engineer and becomes fabulously wealthy by the age of about 35. So at that point, this is roughly 10 years before the first world war, He can sort of do anything he wants in life. And even, and we'll we'll save it for next time to talk about some things with engineering and and social engineering, what precisely Hoover did. But it it is, I think, extremely helpful to know that someone as insignificant as Herbert Hoover 
in people's imaginations and minds and, and, and probably in realistic historic estimation. At the time, <laughs> as he looked at the future, it could not have been brighter and he could not have been more important. S- such that right after the First World War, after he comes off doing a lot of, I mean, and he did a lot of wonderful things. He was sort of a wonderful man in in certain respects. People are in both the Democratic and the Republican parties are saying things in like, you know, 1921, like he's going to be president. Like no, no question in people's minds. He's the guy because he's just so wonderful, so capable, so intelligent. And when you see enough lives like this, especially through the study of history, it it really changes your perspective on life because Hoover achieved so much by his mid thirties and then lived to be 90 years old. He died in 1964. He was born in 1874. He lived to be 90 years old. And by the time he died, he got a televised funeral, but then that was it. And a lot of people probably could not tell you who he was. If you did one of those late night TV show, stop people on the street and ask them about Herbert Hoover. I don't know. I think I the main guest on most late night couldn't tell you who he is. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, didn't and he make so, a dam or something? There's a dam. Yeah, there's a dam, and it was uh, named after him by his buddy, who was Secretary of the Interior. So, you know, there's that, right? But that's it. And so when you think about significance and insignificance, this is something that I think you really have to look at only as you really only ever can in life, only in the rearview mirror. And the, the thing that you can do in the present for the future is to shape life more for the kinds of significance you know are going to be there rather than for significance or achievement or prestigious consumption or whatever it is that is so fleeting and insecure and will just, as you know from past experience, leave you more dissatisfied even if you get it. So if I shape my life more around, you know, hunting with my family than I do around who goodness knows what else I could be doing, I suppose, then I know that's going to be worthwhile. I don't know that being fabulously wealthy by the time I'm 35 or acknowledged by everyone as, you know, he's going to be the president of the United States one day. I don't know that any of that's even going to matter or that even if I got it, anyone would care after I'm dead. I I really can't imagine a political climate where both parties are saying, oh, that guy's going to be president. I just can't even, I just can't even see it. Um, It was a different country. Yeah, Yeah. I guess so. And then, you know, the, to, to push back on the, like, what good is the wealth thing? um, Yeah. You know, I, I always, I, I would rather have a good relationship with my family than wealth. Um, The thing that I think a lot of uh, our listeners probably uh, would like wealth for um, is to build. You know, we what yeah. Hoover was able to do was then uh, exercise leverage. What Trump's able to do, I mean, he's doing it differently. That's in, right. In some ways, but he yeah. can exercise leverage, right, to build. And uh, because I see so much evil in the world, and I, I firmly believe that it will not be perfected this side of Jesus coming back, but I don't think it has to be as bad as it is. Um, no. You know, yeah. To to yeah, have totally that right. leverage would be is is very desirable, but but at what cost? And uh, again, so since most of us are not going to have that leverage, uh, since most of us are, are not going to be put in positions of power and uh, the Christian church is going to be filled with the common um, to then see that what is most uncommon uh, is the family that makes more out of some real life together as opposed to watching some other thing together. And even like sports, yep. right? I think of like going to football games and stuff and watching, you know, the Green Bay or whatever. Like, you know, you, the, people pass that down like it's identity, you know? <laughs> they do. Yeah. They do. Um, yeah. And yet, and yet, what is it? Um, uh, so um, I don't know if that's a, a great closing point. Maybe you got something to, to stamp this with. I, I had passed down to me a, a fervent love of the Pittsburgh Steelers um, that has, I think, for my parents lessened with time, but what it, what those things always were and where they still exist, I think they are, is they're always a proxy for something that is more important and that could be cultivated better in other ways. So for my parents, it was a proxy for 
this is the only thing that we're really proud of as the steel industry collapses in Western Pennsylvania is that we have a really good football team. <laughs> or before the Sandusky scandal, Penn State was a proxy for rural Pennsylvania. So I'm just, this is autobiographical examples. The listeners can supply their own. We were proud of these things as proxies for other other things, ways of living, people we knew, the people we grew up with. And it wasn't so that these things, they're not like patriotism the way that people think about, oh, I love America because it's the greatest country on earth. That I don't think is actually, it's not natural to use that comparative sense to give your life significance. Like as if you say, but people do this all the time. They say, my wife is the greatest woman in the world. She doesn't have to be. <laughs> yeah. She is your wife. That's why you love her. That's why you're happy that it's your anniversary. You don't have to be from the greatest city, the greatest state, the greatest country on earth. The point of significance is that it's yours. I, you know, or speaking to the IRS, the point is it's mine. <laughs> it's not the government's. Okay. And so I derive significance from things actually being not vicarious or that I'm not renting them. Like I'm renting my wife until she wants to divorce me, or I'm renting my money until the government wants to take it from me. It's that significance is derived from actually having things and living a life, not vicariously or on loan. And that as I am you know, married for 60 years, or these are my children, or this is the life that I've built for my family, or this is the church that we go to, whatever. Those things, their significance is derived from the fact that I am personally not just involved in some kind of vague way, but that that life is mine. And that that's the life that I live, and I live it to the glory of God. And when you have that, and whether you're using money or power or whatever else to make that possible, that's that can be a wonderful thing. When you have that, you can say, this life is mine. This is my family. These are the children God has given me. That That's when life is actually obviously and clearly and daily significant. And only you get to be you. So own it. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. <laughs> 